Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Good afternoon, my name is Chino and I will be your conference operator today. I would like to welcome everyone to the Uptos Biosciences Conference Call for first quarter ended March 31st, 2021. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. After the speaker's remarks, there will be a question and answer session. If you would like to ask a question during this time, simply press star followed by the number one on your telephone keypad. If you would like to withdraw your question, please press the pound key. Thank you. As a reminder, this conference call may be recorded. I would like to introduce Ms. Susan Pietropaolo. Please go ahead. Thank you, Chino. Good afternoon and welcome to the Aptos Biosciences Conference Call to discuss financial and operational results for the first quarter ended March 31st, 2021. I am Susan Petropalo of Communications Representative for Aptos Biosciences. Joining me on the call today are Dr. William G. Rice, Chairman, President, and CEO, Dr. Yodi Morongo, Senior Vice President, Chief Financial Officer and Chief Business Officer, and Dr. Rafael Behar, Senior Vice President, Chief Medical Officer. Before we proceed, I would like to remind everyone that certain statements made during this call will include forward-looking statements within the meaning of U.S. and Canadian securities laws. Forward-looking statements reflect Aptos's current expectations regarding future events but are not guarantees of performance, and it is possible that actual results and performance could differ materially from these stated expectations. They involve known and unknown risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that may cause actual results, performance, and achievement to differ materially from those expressed. To learn more about these risks and uncertainties, please read the risk factors set forth in Aptos's most recent annual report on Form 10-K and SEC and CEDAR filings. All forward-looking statements made during this call speak only as of the date they are made. Aptos undertakes no obligation to revise or update the statements to reflect events or circumstances after the date of this call, except as required by law. I will now turn the call over to Dr. Rice, Chairman, President, and CEO of Aptos Biosciences. Dr. Rice? Thank you, Susan. I'd like to welcome everyone to our call for the first quarter ended March 31, 2021. We continue to execute on our plan to develop first-in-class precision treatments for hematologic malignancies, and we understand that building the right team and creating transformational medicines is a deliberate and comprehensive process and not merely a flash in the pan. Regarding the team, we're very pleased to announce today the appointment of our new Chief Financial Officer, Dr. Yodi Morongo, who, with the support of the superb internal finance and accounting team, already has stepped into this role seamlessly. With his research analyst background, knowledge of capital markets and banking practices, and Wall Street insight, Yodi was the ideal candidate and a natural fit for this leadership position. And Yodi will be maintaining his chief business officer role. You can read more about Yodi's background in our press release today, as well as on our website. In addition to Yodi, we also recently highlighted the appointments of Dr. Yu Ying Jin as our vice president of biometrics, as well as Dr. George Melko as our vice president of regulatory affairs, and Dr. Rob Killian as our Vice President of Chemistry, Manufacturing, and Controls. All of these executives are highly experienced and skilled, and we're proud they've joined Aptos 
to help build that right team of essential skill sets for the future. Because our last call was just a few weeks ago, and because we have the European Hematology Association, or EHA, conference ahead of us in just a month, today we will provide you with a very brief clinical update. As you know, our plan of data disclosure for the past, present, and future is to present updated quantitative data at EHA in June, and then around the American Society of Hematology, or ASH meeting, later in the year in December. So we have been, and will continue to, execute on our goal to release a continuum of clinical data at the two premier hematology medical meetings throughout the year, EHA and ASH. Regarding EHA, we recently were notified that all three abstracts were, that, were, that we submitted have been accepted for virtual poster presentations, one for each of our ongoing clinical trials. Again, as I've mentioned prior, those abstracts were merely placeholders. They were submitted early in this year with data reflecting what was known this past December in 2020. However, at EHOP, we plan to present all available data from all patients and all dose levels enrolled in our clinical trials. As we continue to deliver on our dose escalation studies, we'll have the opportunity to place more patients on drug and over longer periods of time. Being able to treat more patients at higher dose levels will continue to inform us on the clinical profile and overall value of luxeptinib, also referred to as CG806 or just LUX. And we look forward to providing those further updates at EHA and then in the second half of 21 during ASH. And finally, the company is on track as our clinical trials continue to see strong patient flow and enrollment as we move through dose escalations. Now I'll ask Dr. Rafael Behar, our Chief Medical Officer, to provide an overview of our clinical activities. Raf? Thank you, Bill. Aptos has three ongoing clinical trials, two studies of the kinase inhibitor luxetinib, or LUX, one in patients with acute myeloid leukemia, or AML, and the other in patients with B-cell cancers. In the third trial, with our MIC repressor, Apto253, in patients with AML and MDS. I'll start by talking about Apto253. Our MIC inhibitor, Apto253, is being tested in a Phase 1AB trial in relapsed or refractory AML and higher-risk MDS patients. More than 40 years have passed since the discovery of MIC and Oncogene estimated to contribute to at least 75% of all human cancers, and research and development efforts since that time have not yielded a clinically useful MIC inhibitor, largely because of an inability to selectively and effectively target the MIC protein. As a direct inhibitor of MIC transcription, Apto253 represents a novel approach for targeting this oncogenic pathway. I'm happy to report that we have completed the fifth dosing cohort of patients in the 150 milligram per meter squared dose level of APTO253, and we've begun enrolling patients in the sixth dose cohort at 210 milligrams per meter squared. We're pleased that our Clinical Safety Review Committee, or CSRC, favored escalation of the dose in phase, our phase one trial. APTO253 is beginning to peak interest, and we're eager to see where it will take us. Now, moving on to lexeptinib. Lux is like no other drug commercialized or in development. It is the only known clinical agent that potently inhibits both FLUT3 and BTK with a precision that avoids known targets that are often associated with toxicity, giving a broad therapeutic potential across the spectrum of lymphoid and myeloid hematologic malignancies. As we mentioned in our last call, we've completed four dose levels in our phase one trial of lexetinib in B-cell malignancies, including chronic lymphocytic leukemia, or CLL, and non-Hodgkin's lymphomas, or NHL, who have failed or are intolerant to current therapies. Thus far, lexetinib has been well tolerated in patients treated at 150 milligrams, 300 milligrams, 450 milligrams, and 600 milligrams twice a day over multiple cycles. 
and dosing has continued with no concerning drug-related safety trends to date, including in the expanded 750-milligram dose cohort, the dose at which we continue to treat newly enrolled patients. In parallel, we are backfilling patients at doses below the 750-milligram dose level, and we hope to dose escalate those patients to 750-milligrams when that level is shown to be safe. For more specific information on the B-cell malignancy trial and the clinical sites that are enrolling patients, please visit clinicaltrials.gov. So now on to luxetinib and AML. With distinctive kinase selectivity, Lux potently and simultaneously suppresses SWIP3 and additional oncogenic signaling pathways upon which AML cancer cells rely for survival and drug resistance, which is why AML has always been a primary focus in our clinical plan. It's important to remind you that all of the patients in our AML trial, similar to our B-cell trial, are relapsed and refractory patients who have already been treated with the best currently available therapeutics. In the case of patients with FLIP3 mutations, often referred to as being FLIP3 positive or mutant, the majority will have progressed after treatment with multiple FLIP3 inhibitors, including gilteritinib, mitostorin, quinolinib, guizartinib, and serafinib, as well as a host of other treatments such as induction and consolidation chemotherapy, multiple cycles of hypermethylating agents, and drugs like venetoclax, and other investigational drugs. Even patients that have undergone allogeneic stem cell transplants are eligible for our study. So the patient population is highly heterogeneous and tough to treat. In our last call, we reported promising anti-leukemic activity for luxetinib, which is driving enthusiasm among our investigators. This early anti-leukemic activity demonstrates Lux is an active drug, but now we need to dose escalate as rapidly as possible in an effort to achieve greater drug exposures to act on multiple targets and pathways that may affect a broader population of AML patients with diverse genetic and epigenetic backgrounds. Towards this goal, we reported in the last call that we had completed the 450-milligram VID dose cohort and had initiated dosing in the second cohort receiving 600 milligrams BID. AML patients are now being treated in the 600 milligram BID dose level, and to date, the drug has been well-tolerated in this patient population. Indeed, we continue to find that Lux is generally well-tolerated with no toxicity signals or trends to date that we believe could prevent further dose escalation. This tolerability profile is very important because it is allowing us to reach higher dose levels that hopefully can treat the heterogeneity of diverse relapse refractory AML patients. For more information on the AML trial and clinical sites that are recruiting patients, please visit clinicaltrials.gov. We're pleased by the progress across our clinical programs and that the safety and tolerability of both drug candidates, Luxetinib and APTO253, are allowing dose escalation in all three of our ongoing trials. As we treat more patients at higher doses, we are generating additional pharmacogenetic and pharmacologic data. We look forward to providing further updates at the EHA and ASH meetings this year. I will now turn the call over to Dr. Yodi Marengo, our Chief Financial Officer and Chief Business Officer, who will review financial results for the first quarter. Yodi? Thank you, Raf, and good afternoon, everyone. We ended the quarter with approximately $112 million in cash, cash equivalents, and investments, compared to $122 million at December 31, 2020. During the quarter, we utilized approximately $10.4 million of cash in operating activities compared with 8.1 million for the same quarter last year. The increase is attributable to increased activities surrounding LUX and 253 and general and administrative purposes. Moving on to the income statement, we had no revenues for the quarter. Research and development expenses were $8.2 million for the quarter compared to $5.9 million for the same quarter last year. The variance was primarily due to an increase in our clinical program costs, including our clinical trial of LUX in AML, which did not begin until the fourth quarter of last year. 
GNA expenses for the quarter were $8 million compared to $5.9 million for the same quarter last year. This variance was primarily due to an increase in stock-based compensation and an increase in personnel expenses, mostly related to new positions. Finally, our net loss for the quarter was $16.2 million, or $0.18 cents per share. More detailed information can be found in our filings on Edgar and Cedar. I will now turn the call back over to Dr. Rice. Bill? Thank you, Yodi. As we open the call for questions, please feel free to pose a question to any of us. Also, because we have a number of participants who wish to ask questions, we will respectfully ask each of you to limit yourself to one question, and we thank you in advance. Operator, if you could, please introduce the first question. All right, so at this time, I would like to remind everyone that if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then the number one on your telephone keypad. We'll pause for just a moment to compile the Q&A roster. First question comes from the line of John Newman from Canaccord. Your line is now open. American Giant makes great clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, and more right here in the U.S. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order with code STAPLE20. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, code STAPLE20. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. John may be on mute. We don't hear anyone. John, your line is now open. Operator, perhaps you could come back to John in just a few moments. He may be on mute or he may be having difficulty. Okay, so for the next question, we do have Gregory Renza from RBC Capital Markets. Your line is now open. Hey, Bill and team. Thank you uh, very much for holding the call, taking my question, and uh, looking forward to the update at EHOP. Um, Bill, j just uh, one question with just some layers around sort of the expectations on the data that's coming up with EHOP. Perhaps you could just provide you know, that, um, that, that context that we have an appetite for, but also perhaps just reminding us on the, uh, the backfilling and the, uh, the, the uh, interpatient dose escalation and going below um, the, the, the enrollment going below the 750 uh, mid-BID. Just curious if you can remind us you know, of the rationale there and how we should sort of think about um, that, that being, being laid out for us and for the, the scientific community uh, during the conference. And, and then lastly, related to that, just how important, Bill, is this for the trajectory of the company, the, the update that we're um, anticipating, especially you know, having uh, data in AML as well as with um, the CLL NHL trial? Thank you very much. All right. Thanks, Greg, and uh, glad your line was working there. A uh, couple of things. You asked about the layers around expectations. Um, 
we're trying to be very careful. Uh, what we're telling everybody is what we what we disclosed at our prior earnings call around the, the clinical trials uh, was all that we're providing until we get to EHAW. Uh, all the quantitative data will be provided to EHAW for around all the, the clinical trials. Most people are interested in Luxeptinet or Lux, and we'll present all the data at that time for both the B-cell malignancy trial as well as the AML trial. So your other question was in terms of backfilling. So in the B-cell malignancy trial, we are dosing patients at 750 milligrams BID. That's in the dose escalation portion of the trial. But in addition, we are backfilling. Uh, we drop back to, uh, so at this point, 600 milligrams has been determined to be a safe dose. So we dropped down one dose below that and began treating patients at 450 milligrams. And it's a way that we can uh, compare two generations of our formulation. The first generation, G1, is a hand-filled capsule, but in order to be able to supply for the trial uh, going into the future, we had to create the uh, machine-filled capsules. We call that G2. So we, we treat the patients for two weeks with one, two weeks with the other, uh, evaluate the, uh, the, the, the pharmacokinetic properties, and then, providing everything goes well, that we move the patients up to 600 milligrams. So that provides us with actually two strategies. One is to get more patients on study and also to compare the G1 and the G2 uh, formulations as we go forward. Um, and then in terms of uh, EHA, you had asked me about uh, the importance of it. What we try to emphasize is we do not see any particular meeting as a binary decision. We try to present a continuum of data throughout EHA and then going into the second half of the year into ASH. So we'll present all the data that we do have uh, for all, all patients, all clinical trials, all dose levels, uh, both at EHA and then as we get into the higher dose levels for longer periods of time, uh, we'll present that at ASH later in the year. Thank you, Greg. Thanks, Bill. Next question comes from the line of Alicia Young from Cancer Fitzgerald. You are now live. Hi, this is Emily on for Alicia. Thanks for taking our question. Um, I was wondering, as you're now dosing the 600 milligram dose group in the AML study, how are you seeing um, the dose response there? And do you have any updates on what you're thinking as the appropriate dose level moving forward? Thank you. So we're providing no, no information on that dose level at this time we'll, because we feel as though we may actually be under embargo because the, uh, all of the, um, the abstracts have been accepted for EHA. So we're just trying to be careful about that. So we're not providing any additional data until we get to the EHA. And in terms of what the, the final dose level will be, uh, we will continue to dose escalate as long as the drug is well tolerated. Thus far, as uh, Dr. Behar had mentioned, it has been well tolerated. We don't see any reasons, at least at this point in time, that we would need to limit the dose escalation. And at the, the point uh, that we can identify a maximum tolerated dose or a, uh, a dose that we believe is biologically effective and safe, uh, we'll then select that then for a phase two dose to move forward. Dr. Behar, did you want to add anything to that in the, uh, the trial? No, I think it's exactly accurate, Bill. Thank you. Thanks. Your next question comes from the line of Matt Bigler from Oppenheimer. You are now live. Hey, guys. Thanks for the question. Uh, Yodi, congrats on the new expanded role. Um, 
I guess kind of a broad strategy question here, and I, I, I don't want to jump the gun, Bill, but given that there are already uh, at least a couple FLT3 inhibitors on the market, do, do you think there's an avenue for accelerated approval of Luxepnib based on response rates alone, you know, maybe in an expanded uh, variation of this trial, or maybe just kind of more broadly, you know, how do you think about the development strategy going forward? Thanks. Hey Matt, thanks for uh, thanks for calling in. So I'll I'll mention I'll respond briefly and then I'll ask uh, both Yodi and Raf if they want to jump in. Um, as we look at the patients that come onto these trials, these relapsed refractory patients, as Dr. Behart mentioned, they have failed essentially everything. So what we'll be looking for are subpopulations of patients that we can identify either genetically or phenotypically uh, that we hope will be responsive to the drug and uh, that we could then move forward toward the more rapid path of, uh, uh, of approval. So the way to do that is if we can identify multiple patients then that respond to that subgroup and then uh, take them into an expanded uh, phase one dose, dose expansion, and then if all goes well there, then you can move into the registrational studies. Uh, but yeah, we, we definitely believe those types of patients are available, uh, and it just we have to show the activity as a single agent of our drug at that time. And I'll ask also Yodi and Dr. Behar if they want to add to that. Dr. Behar? Sure. Uh, I would echo Bill's statement there is that one thing we're, we're not seeing is a lack of patients on study. There certainly are patients that need additional therapies beyond those things that are already available out there. So the fact that there are other FLT3 inhibitors out there has not really yet met that need. I think we do have the opportunity to find patients to treat. And I think if that is successful and goes well, there certainly is a path forward in that regard. Thank you. And, and nothing to add from me. Thank you for the kind words, Matt. Uh, you know, perhaps I will only say that since we are still in a dose escalation study um, and have not yet even moved, identified a, a, a final dose or, or, or designed and, and communicated uh, anything about expansion core, I would say that we are still in the early innings here. So uh, at this point, uh, I'll just second what uh, Raf and Bill mentioned about the path forward. Next question comes from the line of Matthew Cross from Alliance Global. You are now live. Hey, guys. Good to be speaking with you all again so soon, and, and uh, looking forward to a, a busy month of EHAN ASCO in June. Um, I, I guess, you know, between this call and your last, we've, we've kind of covered the bases on expectations for Lux at EHA, um, but I'll, I'll ask about uh, APTO 253, and as that to advance in the clinic a little bit more behind the scenes, uh, I was wondering if, if you could shed any kind of further light on the direction for that program, because um, you, pre you presented some, some pretty interesting data hinting at, at pharmacologic activity, um, and now in the, the fifth cohort, without any noteworthy, noteworthy safety signals, um, was, was wondering if you could kind of recap what, what you view as the, the progress marker you're hoping to reach uh, before we're finding the, the path forward here to consider combinations or, or expansion studies and so forth. Um, I, I don't know if, 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 Bill, you mentioned whether you, we would see some, some, some of an, a data update uh, on 253 at, at EHA as well, um, but wanted to get kind of a, a status update on that. and. and given that uh, I think we're seeing some increased interest in targeting MYC with um, CDK9 inhibitors out there and other modalities, I uh, was curious if, if 253 is, is becoming a little bit more of a priority while the, the LUX trials uh, press ahead. Thanks. All right. I might. Good, good to hear from you again. So, yes, in terms of 253, we, uh, 
we do have an abstract that's been accepted presentation of EHA. We do plan to present the data. Uh, we even mentioned today that we had completed the, the uh, dose level five and we're moving into dose level six. Uh, we continue to follow the pharmacokinetics of the molecule, and what we're hoping to see is a couple of things. One is that uh, we get uh, extended exposure over multiple days. Remember, this is dosed once weekly, and we're hoping to see that the pharmacokinetics uh, maintain uh, higher exposure levels over the period of two to three days. We've already seen an increase when moved up from dose level four to dose level five, and we hope that continues. Uh, we've also said that in the past we had seen reductions in NIC. Um, one of the things that we have to look for here is what we do is we collect uh, a total PBMC fraction from patients at different times, and we look before treatment and after treatment uh, to, to evaluate the, the MIC expression levels. So hopefully in the future we'll be able to, uh, or at least we're trying to, develop methodologies that allow us to look at the malignant cells themselves rather than just looking at the mixture of normal and malignant cells. We have seen reductions in MIP. We hope to be able to see that continue as we dose escalate. Uh, but yes, we remain excited about 253. And you're right, there is a growing interest in MIC uh, because it's involved in so many malignancies. Um, and some of the other inhibitors out there that, uh, that were hopefully uh, were targeting MIC, they were actually targeting it through indirect means. And I know they had associated toxicities. We're hoping this drug, which is a direct repressor of the, uh, the MIC gene, can show activity, show uh, reductions in MIC, sustained levels in the plasma, and then we'll have to see what a MIC inhibitor does because no one truly understands what a, a, a pure MIC inhibitor can do in the clinic. Is it going to develop, uh, deliver single agent responses? We hope so, um, but even if it does not, then it could be a molecule that could be used in combination most likely. So that's where we are in our thinking and we'll present the data that we have at EHA. And thank you for the question. And perhaps Dr. Behar might want to add to that. Uh, again, I echo what you'd said, Bill. I think uh, make it a really attractive target. And uh, I would also say that while we are now in the six-dose co cohort, we have several other cohorts above that that we could go to with the current protocol. So we will have the opportunity to explore even higher dose levels. And uh, we look forward to seeing what, uh, what we find there. It's a really good point. Thank you. All right. And thank you, Matt. Yeah, no, th thanks, Bill and Raph. Appreciate you uh, refreshing my memory, and uh, talk to you next month. Okay, see you then. Your next question comes from the line of Summit Roy from Jones Trading. You are now live. Hi, everyone. Uh, thank you for taking the question, and congrats again, Yodi, for the extended role you're getting into. Uh, uh, one question on the um, on the physicians as you're in the from the AML trial. What is the trend among the physicians? Are they going to uh, the rest, uh, the CR patients? Would they go towards transplant within a month or two? Or what has been your conversation with the physicians? What they intend to do with these patients? And the um, second is you have alluded previously, uh, with the elderly patients in earlier lines, flits um, mutant elderly AML patients. There is no. Uh, single-agent drug approved for these uh, patients. Do you see your drug migrating to that uh, elderly patient as a monotherapy, or do you think that would be a combination with Aza then? Just any thought. All right. Thanks, Amit. Um, so, first of all, I, everyone keeps congratulating Yodi so for, for doubling up his work, so we thank him also. I'll just <laughs> congratulate him. Thank him. Yes. So let me also mention the, uh, so you brought up the elderly flit through mutant population, no single agent drug that's approved. 
Uh, we are very hopeful that our drug will show activity in that patient population. Um, you know, as you mentioned, it's, it's very difficult to treat these patients. We hope to see single agent activity, but then ultimately all drugs are going to be used in combination uh, for that patient population as well as others. And so I'm going to ask Dr. Behar to uh, both expand on that and also address your question about the uh, AML trial when you get CRs and the possibility of transplants. Yeah, thanks, Bill. I, I think you're exactly right in the sense that as we move forward with therapies and AML, combination is where we're going to end up, particularly in the front line. It's going to be very similar, I think, to the situation with multiple myeloma, where now that they have several drugs available in different classes, certain combinations make absolute sense. We know for AML in particular, it might be even more important to try to achieve deep remissions early, especially if patients are capable of receiving consolidation therapy like allogeneic transplant. So we don't think that single-agent activity is going to be the future of upfront treatment in AML. You're going to want drugs that have low toxicity profiles that will be able to combine nicely with other agents that are already active in the disease to allow for those safe combinations that might put patients into a deeper, more sustained, perhaps even curative remission in that first line of therapy. Patients who are relapsed or refractory, unfortunately, are not only much more difficult to treat, they tend to be resistant to so many drugs that the only real consolidation therapy that makes a, a big difference in these patients' lives is allogeneic transplant. So on our study, if a patient were to achieve a CR and they were eligible for a subsequent transplant, they would certainly, I think, move in that direction. This isn't guidance that we give necessarily. This is what the investigators are prone to do, and uh, it's appropriate. However, many patients uh, on our study that are eligible to participate are not necessarily good candidates for allogeneic transplant. So those patients would need to have a continued therapy to keep them in a remission for as long as possible. And hopefully uh, that lasts a substantial amount of time since they won't have a likely curative consolidation option available to them. So patients uh, will be offered transplant if they can. And if they can't, uh, they'll continue on study as long as they can. Got it. Thank you again and uh, looking forward to the data next month. Your next question comes from the line of John Newman from Canaccord. Your line is now open. Hi, guys. Thanks for taking my question. Uh, sorry that I missed you uh, before. Um, I apologize if this question has already been asked. The question I have is just curious, Bill, regarding the lexeptinib work uh, in AML, if, if the plan here is to dose expand um, a cohort when you see um, you know, additional responses or additional activity, or do you just plan to continue to dose escalate until um, there's some potential limitation on safety? Just kind of curious as to how you're thinking about that. Yeah, thanks, John. I'm glad you got your line fixed. Uh, so no, no one else had asked that question. Um, so as we had mentioned earlier, it's a three-by-three three, uh, study in which you have to have three patients. Uh, remember, we started not at the very lowest dose of 150, we actually started at 450, a dose that we thought might have activity. And from that point on, it's three by three. So you have to have three patients that have completed safely uh, the 28-day uh, trial. But we also have the, addition, uh, the ability to put additional patients on there. And uh, we did that for the purpose of trying to get as much data as we can as quickly as possible. But I think what's more important is to remember that these deep relapsed refractory patients, it's much more than just Split three that drives these patients, it's other pathways. So we were very happy that we, we saw a response at the 450 milligram dose level. It all comes down to the right 
right drug, right dose to the right patient. And so that patient had responded. Um, but then going forward, you want to get as much drug into the patients as you possibly can to hit as many of these pathways. And so we're trying to get to the higher dose levels as rapidly as possible. Uh, we want to make sure we do so safely. But we're going to try to continue to dose escalate as quickly as we can. And, uh, and hopefully we'll be able to see additional responses as we get to the higher dose levels. So, you know, you're, the concept of possibly backfilling, and we've seen other trials that do that. Uh, for instance, you might have looked at the gilt-ritinib trial, in which they expanded out at each trial at, the, at, at each dose level where they saw a uh, response. Um, that was in a very different patient population at the time. None of those patients had ever in the past seen a FLT3 inhibitor, never failed them. So the patients we're getting now are much more refractory to a variety of different drugs. So we want to get as much drug as we can in possibly. And I'm going to ask Dr. Behar to, uh, to expand on that. Yeah, I can. So, yeah, in the gilterina trial, I think it's a good example. Um, some of those patients had seen mitostorin in frontline, but none, none had seen a FLT3 inhibitor in the relapse refractory setting, which, of course, many patients now uh, would receive a standard of care. So it is a, it is a very different patient population. Uh, and then to remind me of the of the other part of the question, Bill? Well, it's it's just, uh, do we plan to continue to dose escalate? Or are we just going to right. expand out at each level? Yes. Yeah, so there's two aspects of that. I think one is Bill's point was exactly right, that FLT3 may not be the only target that matters, and that, that additional targets may be important, and those may have different drug response relationships. So pushing to higher dose levels may actually see differences in the eventual outcome for patients. And we want to be able to explore that, even for the FLT3 mutant patients. And, of course, for the SWIT-3 wildfire patients that are also eligible for our study, higher doses of drug may be necessary to target those oncogenic pathways that are, that are targeted by LUX. And we wouldn't want to miss out on the opportunity to explore that simply because we started seeing responses, for example, in patients that might have SWIT-3 mutations. So we want to be able to dose escalate as long as it is safe and we're seeing increased exposures to higher dose levels and might necessarily be the first ones where we start to see any sort of activity. Yeah, and just to remind everybody, even the uh, patients with FLT3 wild type, uh, very often they'll have overexpression of FLT3 or they'll be responding to an overexpression of the FLT3 ligand. And so we're hopefully hopeful that those patients also will, would be able to respond because our drug does inhibit the wild type. John, thank you for the question. Just one additional question. Um, yes, I, it's just difficult to hear you. Oh, sorry. Um, <clears throat> just one additional question, if I may. Um, not sure that this would be necessary, but does the design of the study allow for um, dose interruptions or dose reductions? And then also, um, does the study allow for that dose to be um, re-escalated if necessary? Just curious if you have those types of, that type of flexibility built into the study, just in case um, you need to adjust the dose maybe temporarily and then keep the patients on drugs. Thanks. You know, that's yeah, something that... Oh yes, please go ahead. I, say, I can I can tackle that. I, you know, often when you have a patient who experiences a toxicity, there's uncertainty as to whether it's drug related or not. The drug is appropriately held or reduced in dose until that can be determined. If that toxicity resolves quickly, or it turns out that and with further study wasn't related to the drug, it wouldn't make sense to penalize that patient. And we do have the capability to allow it to redose escalate, and we also have the ability to to alter or hold the dose uh, if patients take interacting medications or things of that nature. So there, there is that flexibility built into the study. Okay, great. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, John. 
And I'm currently showing no further questions. I'll now turn the call over back to Dr. Rice for closing remarks. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us this afternoon. Although we have a lot of work ahead of us, we are very gratified by the progress of our two clinical programs, Luxeptinib and APTO253, and that we've been able to recruit new patients uh, and, to and to escalate the dosing in our clinical trials rapidly. That momentum continues, we look at, uh, and we look ahead to what, what promises to be a very exciting year for APTOS. And we also want to thank the clinical team, our investigators, and our patients for their help in this important work. We also appreciate the support of our shareholders and analysts, and we look forward to updating you on our progress next month. Thank you, and enjoy your evening. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. That concludes today's conference. You may all disconnect and have a wonderful day. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.